escape into the night Wash off with the lepers I turn one on the wine It's a blessing when you come Usher in bounty and love Such benevolent wisdom Descends on you like a Rock Talk with Tyson Bryden. Welcome to Nonstop Rock Talk. I'm your host, Tyson Bryden. Today, I'm very happy to welcome singer-musician Wax Mechanics to the show. Wax, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. I appreciate the time here. No problem. I'm happy to have you. Now, before we get to your latest, your latest release, um, I kind of want to... Uh, get kind of a bit of your background in your musical career, where you started, past work, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm not a new guy. Uh, my history is very, very easy. I am a founding member of an American cult rock quartet that formed in the 80s. In the early 80s, we were signed to a European label. We did some independent releases. And uh, that career is still ongoing. So I'm still an active member of this band called Nitro. Now, uh, N-I-T-R-O. And we are not to be mistaken with the hair band from Los Angeles that started in the late 80s that uh, were part of the glam thing. We were part of the new wave, well, the Americans answer to the new wave of British heavy metal. So we, we formed in 1980 and released the records up until about uh, 85 and took a bit of a vacation and have been releasing reissues and things like that ever since. Cool. That's awesome. So was there ever any confusion with the two names? There must have been. Yeah, there, well, after, uh, let's call them the L.A. Nitro. Let me just state for the record, Jim Gillette Jim. And, and and those guys yeah. really like that stuff, respect them, uh, am a buyer of that stuff, and still do enjoy those records. Uh, we formed in, early, in the early 80s, like I said, in 1980. Uh, we had pretty much finished up our, you know, our constant commitment by 1985. Yeah. We're still a band, but that you know, that long yeah, commitment to just doing nothing but music. We were finished in 85, and I think they formed in 87 right. in, in L.A. So uh, we get a little bit of that. Whenever I mention Nitro, people automatically go to that, and then I have to do a bit of course correction. And it's not that, uh, you know, I certainly don't want to steal, or could we ever steal their thunder, because they were assigned to a major label and had all that exposure, and they're still... Uh, I know Michael, the guitar player, is uh, still going strong, so we respect that and wish them luck, but we're not those guys and we don't want to hold ourselves up to, as them. <laughs> we, we were more kind of like the Metallica thing yeah. and they're more like the Poison and the Van Halen so that's really the big big difference musically. Yeah, so I mean so getting to that in, in that time period um, you said you were assigned to a European label now were you touring over in, strictly over in Europe? 
We never had a chance to tour in Europe. We were signed to, well, the, the sequence of events was really simple, and I'll be brief. We uh, were formed in central Pennsylvania, which was not the music hotbed of the world, so we were like uh, basically a garage band, and then we were starting to do our own original stuff. We were writing and having a good old time and decided to make a record of our own just to sell it gigs, and this was probably 1981, and uh, we made a small 10-inch EP. It was called Lethal. So uh, black and white today, really do it yourself. We didn't know anything about the music business. We didn't have a manager. We didn't, you know, none of that accoutrement. So what we did is uh, made a record and took it to the gigs and sold it. And that was fun. And then somehow it managed to get its get itself over to Europe and we made some, you know, we were, we had a little piece in Kerrang, we were mentioned on some charts, we made some charts and then a uh, European label came sniffing around, they were called Mausoleum Records oh, yeah. and Mausoleum, yeah, so Mausoleum said, hey, you guys are pretty good, uh, do you want to release this over here? And we're like, yeah, sure, we'll do that, but we don't want to release the same thing. Can we please put some more songs on it? Because, you know, we were a rock band writing, we were in the studio, we had new tunes, and we said, let's put a few more songs on here and give our folks uh, in Europe uh, the, the, the lethal album that they liked, but with a few new ones. And we called it, and it was, we really stretched our creative minds on this. We called it Lethal Plus Two because we put two more songs on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. I mean, it's I, ironically enough. I mean, you you mentioned Mausoleum Records. I believe that um, just thinking about that label, I think uh, Joy Belladonna after he left Anthrax was on that label, and yep. And now getting back to the Nitro thing because Jim Gillette was the original singer in the band Tough, and Tough's yep. second album was on Mausoleum as well. Yeah, there's, a, you know, it's like uh, six steps away from Kevin Bacon or whatever that game is called. <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, the fun thing was that we were, we never did get to do the touring of Europe. There only been a couple of false alarms to get there, but it never really happened. And they were a small label and they weren't giving us any tour support or anything like that. It was send us a record and we'll put it out and we'll see what happens. So we kind of got known for that um, and that was where people if you you know scour the internet were known for our homemade EP which is called Lethal and that was released on a small local label that's called Red Dog Records in uh, Central PA and then uh, Mausoleum and we've released some other things after that but those are the two that really were, were most well known for if we're well known at all I want to punctuate and emphasize here that this is a really modest pedigree that we have with Nitro we're proud of it we're a bit surprised and puzzled by it because we never aspired to do any of that stuff uh, in a big way. It would have been fun, and but uh, basically, um, you know, by 1985, we were in our mid-20s at that point and said, listen, we're probably just going to go our own way here because we never did have that big break. We never did get, you know, uh, another record deal, which we had hoped for. We never did get the big tour support because we really didn't have management and we weren't in L.A. We worked in New York or London or, you know, any of those places. So, uh, and we were okay with that. And we're still friends. We still uh, are a band. Uh, we don't actively gig, but we're still an entity. And everybody's, you know, we're all still brothers and friends. And uh, and hopefully we'll be able to release some more Nitro records. But there are usually big chunks of time between the Nitro activity. And um, myself and the lead guitarist, John Hazel, were the creative engine, for lack of a better term. And I'm always writing songs and have been, you know, since I was a child. So I just continue to do it. And 
uh, the songs piled up, and I was uh, approached by uh, Electric Talent Records to do another to do a solo record, and and here you have it. And I was kind of gigging around by myself solo, uh, and, um, and that's it. Kind of morphed into that, uh, and it it kind of grew some extra legs and. Bang, Zoom, I'm here with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. Now, I mean, now, before we get to the album, I have to ask, like, back then, were you, you guys as a band must have been listening to the new wave of British heavy metal, those type of bands, and kind of influenced by that whole thing, now? Yeah. Um, the 50,000 foot view was pretty simple. Um, the other guys in the band, they were Dana Confers, the lead vocalist, uh, John Hazel, the lead guitarist, Brad Gensamore is the bassist, and I was the drummer. Now, I have to be honest with you, yeah, I, I, was the, uh, I was the baby in the band, so I joined in 1980. And uh, I was still in my teens then. Yeah. The other guys were older than me. Now, I had older brothers and, and just, uh, you know, the stew that I was finding myself in, it was mostly classic rock from the U.S. and a lot of European and British metal. Yeah. So in the 70s, you know, I came up with typical American rock radio, AM and FM through the 60s and 70s. And uh, whenever we were forging ourselves as a band and defining our mission statement, we were taking in all those influences that we liked, all the British bands, Zeppelin, Sabbath, Priest, early Def Leppard, early Iron Maiden, Deep Purple, all that stuff. And we were filtering it through our lens in America. Now, we were also bringing in uh, American influences like Aerosmith and Boston and that kind of stuff. And I don't want to leave out Queen as well from the, from the UK. Yeah. And we filtered it through our American lens, and, um, you know, we had our own. And Dana was a bit of a Southern Rock fan, so he brought that kind of stuff into it. Brad Gensamore was a fan of punk, and he was bringing that kind of stuff into it. Ramones at MC5, you know, uh, he was a big ACDC fan. John Hazel was big into Sabbath and Deep Purple and uh, that kind of thing, and Van Halen. And I liked all that stuff, and I even liked pop music. I was a bit of a fan of pop music, and Queen was big for me, the Beatles and Beach Boys and you can hear that stuff in my solo record. But Nitro was doing that. We had a very focused mission statement, which was we were going to be, and we were dubbed sort of the American answer to the new wave of British heavy metal. Not that we were, you know, Metallica or Megadeth or anybody like that, or Anthrax for that matter. But we were coming up at the same time. Yeah, but you guys were kind of following, I mean, um, I mean, you mentioned Def Leppard and, and Iron Maiden, but I mean, you also had like Diamond Head and... Yes, yes, you know, and uh, I believe the Tigers of Pantang and just a uh, oh, sweet savage, which was uh, featured Vivian Campbell and yeah, really young then. So I mean, there was there was quite the, besides the bands that became big, there was I mean, there was quite a few other bands that maybe a lot of people aren't aware of as well too, right? I think Metallica has been very big on making people aware for for the last thirty years about the new new wave of British heavy metal, right? Yeah, I mean, and we all know how they feel about Diamond Head, oh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> right. so, uh, and anything that appeared in Kerrang because we were consumers of that. Uh, we, you know, we lived near the Penn State University. Yeah. We didn't live in that town, but the Penn State University was really close to us, and they got all kinds of import records, and they were catering to people with all kinds of tastes. And there were specialty stores there where you could get magazines that were imported. And I remember when we stumbled on Kerrang, it was like finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. We were just overjoyed <laughs> so yeah. we consumed it uh, just uh, and 
and other similar magazines that were, were coming across the pond. It was mostly that sort of uh, late 70s and mid to late 70s uh, and early 80s uh, British and European influences, and we really consumed that and mixed it up with our American influences as well. I was a huge fan of Aerosmith and Van Halen and uh, Boston and, you know, Meatloaf and Foreigner and Kansas and Sticks, and so I like that kind of stuff, although I did like the other stuff as well. So we filtered it through that, and we're kind of known for that sort of early, uh, it's got a bit of a, a new wave of British heavy metal thing, a little bit of pop thrown in there, and a little bit of punk. But we, you know, our our pedigree was modest, our following was modest, but it's it's endured, and we're really proud of it, and sort of puzzled by it, to be honest with you. But uh, I think that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and you know what? This is actually the first time on my show of almost 100 episodes that we've actually talked about the new wave of British heavy metal. Wow. That, no, I, mm. I, I checked it out a little bit, and I was wondering, you know, I'm probably not the, uh, the, the outlier here, but if I am, I'm certainly darn proud of it. I, I, we, we wear that proudly, and even though, like I said, we're, you know, we're not a big deal, we're proud of it, and uh, we embrace it, and, and we're thrilled with it frankly. Yeah, and I mean, I've even had David Ellison on the show a couple times and we might wow. maybe touched on it a little bit um, because yep. because the last time I spoke with him, we were talking about his new covers album and um, there's, I think there might be a few tunes um, on that that are from that genre. Oh yes, there is because I think Wasted by Def Leppard's on there. Yep, we used to do the Wasted in our live ship sets uh, when we were gigging around. Now, funny, I, I want to jump in here with the David Ellison thing. Yeah, I'm a fan of Megadeth, and yeah. I know Dave's work and respect him quite a bit. And uh, uh, you mentioned the covers album. Yes. So we had just talked about the six steps between you know, Kevin, between something and Kevin Bacon. I, 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 I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. <laughs> so Dave just made the covers record, and on there he's gotten some help from one of my good friends who's on my record, a guy named Brandon Yeagley, who is the lead singer of a band called Crowbot. And uh, if you check that out on Dave's record, not that I'm holding myself up to be compared to the quality of Dave's work because I'm not, <laughs> but it's funny that there's this connection the tissue. So um, my point is that I think Dave and the people like me and that came up at that time, we all have these similar tastes and that's sort of manifesting itself in our later work. And, you know, Dave's obviously had a huge and wonderful career uh, relative to my modest career. But in any case, Brandon Yagley's on both records and that's really cool. That's awesome. <laughs> you know what, I've been trying to get a hold of that darn vinyl of that album. And um, I mean, Amazon up here doesn't even have it. So I may have to get it through his website because I'm I'm a big vinyl guy. I, I mean, I have a lot of CDs, but I don't, more or less, I buy vinyl. And I say that a lot on my show because I'm, I'm such a big proprietor of vinyl. And going back to that, going backwards, I guess you would call it, because we're, we're going back to a technology that, you know, started in the 50s or even before that, right? But, yeah. you know what yep. I mean? So, I, and I just, I think it's amazing, but... Um, I, David, I mean, Dave, having him on the show, he is always such a pleasure because as soon as you start talking about music, he's just, he's like, it's like talking, it's like you and I talking, it's like talking to your buddy because he's such a fan that he, he just loves to talk about it. And, and I love having him as a guest just for that very fact. Well, he started his own label uh, recently, uh, yes. relatively, and 
uh, has, uh, I think the ethos kind of feels to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's it's a bit of an old school uh, nod to the old school approach to things. I think so. And I I appreciate that. Now, um, you know, I I feel I'm I'm of Dave's generation. I've followed a similar path, although my career hasn't been as as, as productive as his and as uh, high profile. But I feel akin to him as well, and I can understand why he was doing that. And when I saw that, and I've been following Dave a bit, I said, yeah, I kind of feel like that. He feels like a brother to me. We don't know each other personally, but uh, I can appreciate and understand what he's going through. So I'm a big proponent of, of what he's trying to do in vinyl, for sure. I mean, I have to be honest with you. It's not a real record unless I can hold it in my hands and it's a vinyl. I agree. <laughs> I, you know what? It's so funny you say that because... I will I will look something up on Amazon Music. For instance, I have Amazon Music. Mm-hmm. I won't listen to it, and like I'll be like, so I'll, I'll put it on a on a playlist, and I'll have it on shuffle. Like I've probably got about fifteen hundred songs on a shuffle list, and I'll skip it until I buy it. <laughs> I That's it. Gr- oh, I love that approach. Yeah, it's, it's like, like no, you know what? I can't. I don't feel right listening to this. I've got to wait till I actually have the physical copy. Because then I feel like I'm actually supporting what that art, what they're doing. And we appreciate that. On this side of the microphone, we really appreciate that. And I know that there are different strokes for different folks. I, uh, you know, I, I have my own way of consuming music, and I do it all kinds of different ways for different reasons. But I feel the same way you do about this. I, I do remember that when I... I buy an important record. Now, I consume some records sort of casually and others that are more important. So when I get a new record, I want to carve out enough time so that I can sit down and listen to the whole thing, both sides, uh, album, front to back. I don't want to hear the single, frankly, of the things that I'm really excited about because I want to listen to the whole statement. That's just my own little weird approach to it. So uh, we appreciate the way that you're consuming it, and I know that the reality is that songs are consumed independently and differently and you know i i'm not a i'm not one of those guys that get off my lawn kind of thing you know i i like to say as current as i can well i mean i just i've been i downloaded i'm not downloaded whatever you call it on the on the streaming site the new accept album Mm-hmm. And I listened to that. I did listen to a few tracks on it because I wanted to get a feel for it because it's a different singer. It's not Udo. So I'm like, right. what's, what's this going to be like? But it's phenomenal. But the, the only downfall is this. <laughs> to buy it, to buy that vinyl on Amazon is $47.99. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> and you had mentioned this earlier, that the economics of the record business are not what they used to be. So is it sustainable? You know, uh, the sustainability is really not there yet. I think we're in this interim period between the old model and the new model, and people are trying to figure out how to do this. And unfortunately, the artists are the ones that are underrepresented from an economic standpoint, and they're going to take the brunt of it. And there's going to be this diminishment of the art, I think. But it'll eventually come back. It's kind of like a scorched earth policy is the way I kind of view it. So we'll see what happens. I lead with my wallet when I can to support those people that I think are worthy and that turn me on, you know, can be just a visceral response to something, and I'll lead with my wallet. So I'm hoping that people do the same thing for me. Um, and uh, there's always the sunny side of the mountain as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. And you know what? I will, I will end up buying it. It's just, it's just like, 
Okay. Yeah. But there's other things too. I see other things, and I'm like, oh, I want to get that first. So I'm still like I'm still like a, a 13 year old kid when it comes to buying music because I still get excited about it, and I can't wait. I like the fact that it comes in the mail, but at the same time, I miss going to the record store all the time and uh, on release day and like going there and picking it out, like being like maybe the first guy to buy it in the store. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, they can they can coexist. These models can coexist, I think. We can be excited about going to the record store and having that uh, tangible response to music and having an experience that's all-encompassing like that that has different facets to it. And I, I do that with the important records to me like you do for your important records. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think that it can also, streaming can coexist. There are new bands that, right. that, and, that I'll check out and I'll, I wouldn't have gone out and spent 40 bucks on the vinyl but now I can download it for you know 7 bucks and, or whatever it is to hear their whole album and that's a great opportunity so there, there are redeeming qualities to both and so I'm not uh, I'm not against streaming I'm not against this new model but something has to happen to where the artists are able to continue to produce in a way that uh, we need them to that's right I, I think it's I think it's being uh to the point where you're using it uh, as a benefit. You're doing it for the right reasons. You're not you're not doing it for the fact that oh, I can listen to whatever I, music I want to for free. And um, you know, just just taking the fact that you know, taking an artist at, advantage of an artist for the fact like oh, their music's going to be there and I can just listen to it. Well, right. You know, and. But the way the way that I do it or you do it is like, okay, I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to pay whatever the download fee is for it. But the, the, the good chance is that I'm probably, I may just buy the physical copy because I'm gonna, if I like it enough, you know, that kind of thing. So... Yeah. I, I, well, that's my that's my entrance point. If, if there's somebody that's unknown that I'm curious about, I, I feel bad about just kind of taking the music and not giving them anything in return. Yeah. And that's just my own personal hang up on it because you know I'm on the other side of the glass, kind of. So what I'll do is I'll download it, and if I like it, then I'll say, okay, how can I support these guys? Can I buy their merch? Can I buy their physical record? Can I go to their gigs? How can I support them? Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at as well. So. So we agree on that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think there's. I, th I think we're in the majority. I have to be honest with yeah, you that people so. that do love music, I don't think it's going to be in the tens of millions. But uh, that 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 kind of uh, fan is is out there, and those are the kinds of people that I think are worthy of the artistic uh, the work that artists really try to uh, bring to the table when they're doing serious work, and that's how I try to approach it. So exactly. Now, let's talk about your latest release. Mobocracy. Mobocracy, right? Yes. Okay. Rule by the mob. Yes. <laughs> now, on Electric Talon Records, which you mentioned, uh, I'm kind of curious about the label. I've, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Well, they're a relatively small label, uh, but powerful. <laughs> they're going to like that I said it like that. Um, they're from Philadelphia. Uh, they're an independent label. Um, they are mostly known for sort of a, a stoner kind of thing, uh, which is cool, groovy, stoner kind of doom, doomy stuff. Yeah. Um, my stuff isn't kind of like that, but and this leads me to say what I wanted to say about them is that uh, Electric Talon is relatively new. Philadelphia is 
in, in the U.S. For those of, uh, of us that are not in the U.S., and uh, basically they um, uh, they approached me and uh, we hooked up somehow, and they said this is a pretty cool album. Do you want to release it with us? And I looked at their label and I said, uh, really isn't exactly what you guys are doing. And they said, don't worry about that. <laughs> we got it. We're interested in all kinds of stuff. So uh, my record is slightly different, but I think it's they're building a breadth to the label. And um, the fellow that runs it is Stephen Burdick, and he's also a member of uh, a band on the label called The Stone Eye. So uh, good stuff there, and a shout-out to them. Electric Talent's a great place to be. Cool. That's awesome. I, I like the name of the I like the name of the label. So, I have to be honest with you, when I first saw it, I said, "That's cool. What is this?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I saw I saw the logo. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. Now, now, um, mobocracy. There has to be a yeah. meaning behind that title. Well, by definition, uh, mobocracy, it means rule or domination by the masses. And uh, the record that I made is a, uh, it's, it's not a collection of just uh, unconnected songs. So I wanted to write something that was of and for its time. And I started making it in about 2015. I uh, started writing the songs and uh, up through, uh, released it in late 2020 and that gestation period sort of marinated the songs in all of the social political uh, stuff that was going on in America and around the world and uh, I was feeling this darkness and this uh, thrashing around of America you know we had encountered a new government a new administration that was uh, had some people overjoyed and other people were distraught and everybody knows how America was going through this tectonic shift in their political and social, uh, in our social and political uh, uh, fabric. Yes. And uh, I was, I wasn't trying to deliberately write the stuff. I mean, it wasn't a real uh, deliberate approach, but uh, songwriting and you're a musician, so you know how it kind of happens that you kind of wait for that spark of inspiration and then you follow it and then you bring your craft to bear on it if you feel it's worthy. And so all the songs that I was writing had this common theme to it and it had to do with all of these forces that were bearing down on me and the rest of the people that I was living with in, in the U.S. So it's an American's perspective on the changes that we were going through uh, from 2015 to uh, the end of 2020 when I released it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's been, even when was it, back in January, that was, I mean, as a Canadian up here watching everything that went on, it was like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was something, so... Well, we, uh, you know, there are two sides to that. As an American, and uh, my, my family is deeply rooted in the U.S., uh, I'm about a seventh generation American, so uh, I'm about as American as we can be. Um, something, something like that, uh, multiple generations. In any case, um, whenever America goes through these sorts of swings, whether they're political, economic, or social, the first instinct is, oh, this is a little embarrassing to be doing this in front of everybody. And once I get past that, I say, this is going to be a demonstration to people around the world how democracy works. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be messy. And not everybody's going to be happy. But what will happen is that we will be as transparent as any nation can be. Now, we can debate all the nuances of that. And I know there are nations that are transparent 
transparent in Canada is certainly one of those. And we love our Canadian neighbors yeah. for all kinds of reasons. And you folks have a great government and the way that you, I've been to Canada many times, so uh, I can speak from boots on the ground experience. My point is that when that goes on in America, it's a little bit embarrassing. But at the same time, about the, you know, when I take back uh, a, a step and, and take a breath, I say, I'm proud of how we're going to do this. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be messy. And we're going to be a little bit embarrassed. But at the end of this, I think our institutions are going to hold, and they did. And I think that uh, we'll learn and we'll grow. And this is part of that journey. And we're all locked in this small amount of time that we find ourselves in. And we think it's the most important or the most divisive or the most, uh, uh, you know, the most glorious. And that's really not the case. It's part of a story. And I try to keep that in perspective. It's hard to do, and boy, we had some embarrassing stuff going on, and you'll see more of it from us, but you'll, in most cases, people know where America stands, for the most part. That's a good point. That's a very good point. That's true. And I mean, after the whole thing, that, that, that is the best way to put it. So I do, I agree with that. It's embarrassing, but I'm a proud American, and frankly, I'm really proud of the way that our institutions held up, and they're pretty rickety right now, and we have to rebuild them, and we have a lot of work to do, but uh, boy, it got messy there in January and in uh, late uh, 2020, so, uh, but, uh, and thanks for those people around the world for tolerating us, uh, we will we're, you know, we're basically a good people and uh, we are not any different than anybody else around the world. I've had the good fortune to travel the world and I'm here to tell you that people are the same everywhere. Uh, no matter what culture, what race, what religion, what nation, uh, we all want the same things. And uh, America is no different than that. So sorry for the mess, folks. We'll clean it up. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about the material on the album and we're going to go uh, six tracks on the album. And I'm going to ask you about all six. It's like, oh, great. I think we deserve to talk about it because I really like this album, as I stated to you before we began. Um, I think there's a lot of great material on here. So we're going to we're going to start with Blood in My Eyes. Now, I must ask about the intro. Is ah. is that Italian? <laughs> what and what is the translation? Uh, good, good try, but no, it's Russian. Oh, it is okay. See, I'm not up. And <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that's that's okay. Uh, and it's not me. I don't speak Russian. Yeah. My uh, my friend and my producer and my uh, partner in crime is a fellow in Philadelphia. He's a musician. He's a record producer and a uh, an engineer. His name is Electric. That's his street name, L-E-C-T-R-I-Q. And you can read about it, all of the stuff on the credits uh, when you check the album out. And uh, he is actually, uh, he's a Russian-speaking fellow. He's an, he's an American, been in America for, for decades, but uh, he was born in Ukraine, so he speaks fluent Russian. So when I was telling him and we were designing the album, after I had all the songs and said, I think it wants to be this. And he said, okay. So what I wanted to do is I said, because of this, you know, we have this, problem with, uh, you know, there, there was the, uh, you know, the investigation about the Russian interference in the election and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to uh, tie it together. That was some of the connective tissue. And you'll find throughout the record there are little snippets of Russian everywhere that say impo important things. Yeah. I put those in air quotes. At the beginning, what Max is saying, <laughs> Max is, the real name is Max, uh, what Electric is saying is, 
uh, I'm Wax Mechanics, and I approve this message. Because uh-huh. the only part I got out of this was Wax Mechanics. <laughs> right. So <laughs> right. He, he, he said, well, what do you want to say? And I said, I want to tell people that uh, I want to introduce the record by saying, I'm Wax Mechanics, and what you're about to hear is something that I approve of. You know, when you hear a political, it was a bit of a, uh, a fun little uh, poke in the side to political messages that say, you know, I'm Joe Biden, or I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. You know, so I said, I'm Wax Mechanics, and I approve this message. And to twist it a little bit more, I put a little bit of a, a Russian twist on it, because that's what we wanted to thread through here, was there's, there was, you know, this, this interference of, uh, in the process was bending me out of shape. It really upset me that uh, whether people believe it or not, you know, we have our intelligence professionals say, yes, there was interference, and the Russians were doing it. And yes, I know we, the Americans do it, and everybody else does it. I, I, I'm not naive. But uh, for the purposes that I was uh, trying to carve out here, and I had at my disposal a fluent speaking uh, Russian speaking Ukrainian. <laughs> so wow. I, I asked Electric, I said, Can we do this? And he said, That'd be great. And it was as if the universe was kind of helping me make this record the way I wanted to make it. So put all the tools there. Somehow the songs came. 2020 was on its way, and we had the most divisive time in my lifetime uh, going on. And it just seemed to all come together. And I, as an artist, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? I take stuff in and I give it back. By definition, I'm the pond reflecting the oncoming stone, right? That's what I do as an artist. So, uh, and people can think it's pretentious. People can, you know, uh, concept record, uh, get out of here, whatever. That's I don't care about that. I'll deal with that later. I'm an artist. This is what I'm doing. And by definition, that's my job. So that's what I said in the beginning. Of, well, I didn't say it. My, my producer, Electric, said it. So he's saying, uh, uh, I'm Wax Mechanics, and I approve this message. And that's that. what it says. That's so, cool. so it's introduction. Now, the people in Eastern Europe will get it, but the Americans and the Canadians or you know, the South Americans don't really get it yet. So I'm glad you asked. <laughs> well, now they will, though. Well, if they listen to the show, now they will. Now they'll, they'll know what it means. And they'll go, oh, okay, I got you. And, and I mean, the song kicks butt. The song is great. I love the I love the sound of that song. Um, just a great lead off track. Yeah, the uh, let me. Uh, I'll preface the whole the discussion of the whole album, the sonics, um, the sound of it. You know, you and I are are musicians, and and we we like the songs themselves. We also like the sound of a good a, a record that sounds good. Really excites me. You know, I remember hearing good sounding records that were great songs. I remember bad sounding records that were great songs and vice versa, all that mixed up. So what I wanted to do is I said, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a record unless I can make it sound good. And if the songs are good and if the idea is good. So there were a couple of check boxes. So once I had the idea, check that mobocracy and here's what I'm going to do. I had the song. So then I said, okay, let's see if I can make them sound good. So we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, cut corners on that. I can't take credit for the Sonics and I have to, pay respect to those people that, that did it. Now, there were two. One was Electric, who was the engineer and the producer, so he helped me to actually make the record. And then once we had the record done, the recording was finished, we had to mix it and master it. And then I went to a friend of mine who is relatively well-known, a guy named Gene Machine Freeman. Machine which is what he goes by, is a well-known uh, record producer uh, who's done records by Lamb of God, 
Clutch, King Crimson, Crowbot. So he's done a lot. If you just Google a guy, you'll see his pedigree. So I have to be honest with you, Dyson. I'm still a few inches off the ground from having the machine work on my record. And the the sonic architecture is due to those two guys, electric and machine. Um, So I'm still thrilled and a little bit high from even working with those guys, especially machine. Uh, super guys that know what they uh, know, know their way around it. So the record sounds so good because they put their they brought to bear their skills and experiences to it. And uh, I just had to bring the songs and the performances. And um, Blood in My Eyes was the first one. The whole record sounds good because Machine mixed it and Electric produced it. Yeah, I mean, getting to the next track, which is Victorious, when I that intro. The vocal—I <laughs> mean, I more or less in my notes I've written that is a mind cluster because I'm listening to it and I'm like, "Holy cow! This is this is just blowing me away." I'm just like, "Wow! What an introduction to a song." That was a lot of fun. We all like those kinds of things, you know. I'm a classic rock guy at heart, even though I do all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. And um, so, even though lyrically and thematically it's pretty involved, you know, the rest of the record, all the songs. This one, I wanted it to. It was probably the biggest challenge because I wanted it to do two things. I wanted it to be able to be taken at face value and people to have this primal response to it. But I also wanted it to work with the rest of the record and theme. Now, the the intro part with the drums and the big scream and all that that's that's me uh, just enjoying that whole visceral response uh, that people get from those kinds of songs like we will rock you and we are the champions and shout it out loud by kiss and rock and roll all night yeah. those kinds of things yeah. you know uh or, or welcome to the jungle or you know any of those things that you hear at a football game yeah. so and that's really what i wanted to do is i wanted to make a song that was a 20th 21st century version of that whether i did it or not up for debate, but that was my goal. So um, I, uh, <laughs> the, the scream has a fun little anecdote about it. Um, if anybody's listened to it, you'll hear the tribal drums come in. So you know, and then there's this big long uh, scream of victorious. And believe it or not, that's yours truly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And the anecdote part is uh, the fun little fact about it is that um, I was headed to the studio and we were going to come it and I had to practice a little bit and warm up a little bit so I'm in my car and I'm trying it out you know it's kind of embarrassing to do it and really squonk it up so I wanted to warm up in my car so before I go to the studio with electric I'm doing it in my car and I'm, eh, it's not sounding too bad and I'm getting the length of it that I wanted and you know the impact and I said eh, let me just record this on my phone to see what it sounds like so I did it in my car on my phone I talked to Electric and I said, hey, here's what I want to do. And he goes, well, let me hear it. So I played it for him and he says, why don't we just use that? And I said, what? He goes, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. He goes, you were relaxed. You hit the notes, blah, blah, blah. And wow. I said, okay. <laughs> so what you hear was recorded on my phone in my car. <laughs> That's cool, man. That's so cool. Wow. So, so kids, you don't have to go to a formal recording studio. Well, you can I, do it in your car. I mean, when I hear that, I think back, and I just read this for, again recently, was uh, a bit like Skid Row, the band Skid Row. Yep, I know Sebastian well. Yeah, right. And during when they were doing Slave to the Grind, they did a demo of the song Slave to the Grind, and it actually ended up on the album because they couldn't they couldn't get it better 
in the studio after they had already done the demo. So the, the demo is actually what is on Slave from the Grind, which is, to me, is amazing. Uh, and I would chalk most of that up to their talent. You know, Sebastian is just amazing. Uh, I don't hold myself up to any of those guys. I lucked out and hit the notes, and you know, but those guys are really, really good. No, I, uh, I appreciate that. And we all know as musicians that sometimes it's not about the perfect performance or the perfect, perfect microphone. It's about it's about the whole vibe and all those things come together. Yeah. And there are lots of little places on my record that are like that. And I can pinpoint them. And, um, you know, where I said that was the moment that we're taking that off the demo and putting it in. And we all agreed, you know, it was, it was all of us, me, me and machine and electric agreed to it. So, you have to know when that moment is there, and Nitro was a lot of that too. Is you know, back in the eighties, you did one take, and it was analog, and you know, you played played the same room, and That's there was right. none of this back and stuff. Yeah. So you know, we did we relied on that a lot. It was mostly trust your instincts, and I bring a little bit of that. That's the experience that I draw on. You know, I've been there, and I know how that works, and I know when to identify it when it's in the room. And uh, so whether the young kids can or not, I, I don't know. But I know it took me decades to be able to get that and have my antenna up and saying, ah, that's it. Bring that in. So yeah, for that fun, Victorious was fun. It, it had to serve two purposes. And um, on Blood in My Eyes and on Victorious, um, Brandon Yagley's helping me with all those vocals. Now, even though I'm doing lead vocals, he's doing backing vocals with me and uh, all throughout the whole album. So a lot of that layering is, is me and Brandon doing track after track and stuff, which pays homage to you know my my beach boys queen and 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 uh uh beatles uh, love for that kind of stuff so i wanted to i wanted the record to be you know somewhat poppy and singable and catchy but i wanted it to also rock and slam and howl and whether i achieved those is anybody's guess but that was the goal so especially on victorious you will hear there's a huge queen influence in there with the guitars and uh, that's that's due to my buddy Tom Altman, who's uh, my primary guitar uh, partner in crime now. Um, he's helping me out there, and I've also had some other people in it. But Victorious was fun. That's a cool too. Now all freaks. Um, I like that. I love that title because I mean, more or less, it's like we are all freaks in some way or another, and that's kind of what I get out of it. Kind of give me your perspective on that track lyrically. Well, lyrically, it was I, I needed to address this. Uh, uh, it was more of a silo issue. You know, you talk about people being in silos and the polarization that I was experiencing. So when I was writing it, it was probably uh, you know early 2016. Uh, in the, uh, it, it took me a while to finish it, but it was throughout 2016. It was run up to the election. And we had a lot of people that were uh, pointing fingers, saying, you guys are the enemy. No, you guys are the enemy. Now, I've been on both ends of the political spectrum, and I wanted this record to represent that. I'm not taking a political stance or social stance on this record. I'm just putting it out there to say, here's what we are, and here's what we're experiencing. So there's no, it's not a left record, it's not a right record, uh, and it's not a uh, an independent record. So what I wanted to do was to make sure that I captured this uh, aggression that I was feeling in my life where people were looking at each other that were 
previous to this time in our history were friends and family and now we were enemies and we were looking at each other like we were freaks you know and I had somebody talk to me said he's uh, you know an effing liberal freak or she's an effing Republican freak I heard that a couple of times and you know as songwriters that stuff doesn't just blow by you sometimes it gets stuck in your head so (laughs) that's where it came from and I just expanded on that idea of hey we're all freaks but you know I'm no more freaky than you are and uh, that's what I was trying to get across with it and there's a little bit of Russian in there as well if you listen to the beginning and the end (laughs) so uh, that was uh, that was uh, there for it was purposeful at the beginning some spoken Russian is um, uh, um, uh, let's see if, if you if you if you if you can't, we will teach you. If you won't, we will make you. And that's what I felt like we were trying to jam down everybody's throat. That's you know cool. what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, um, and uh, interesting part about that musically is that there is no guitar solo in it. And that's, uh, that's my little bit of punk uh, um, fetish coming out. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. And I know we all like these great guitar solos, but the song right before it, you know, Victoria has this huge, great, grandiose guitar solo that Tom but Tom Altman did. And I wanted to make sure that I, you know, I'm a fan of the Ramones, and the song is basically a prototype of uh, the way that I filtered the Ramones, the MC5, and Elvis Costello through, and that's uh, All Freaks came out. And uh, wanted to make sure, I don't remember a Ramones song ever having a guitar solo, do you? Uh, well, I want to be stated, kind of. Has a guitar oh, okay. where they pluck it on one note. <laughs> I think it's there you go. E or something like that. <laughs> so we had Victoria. Well, I, I um, uh, you know, my my guitar skills are limited, so I appreciate those one note solos. But yeah. um, we had Victorious, which was like a five minute song. It was big, it was long, and it satisfied that part of my head and part of my soul. And I also love those really short pop songs and love the Ramones those things were no more than three minutes long so I wanted to make that that was a concise deliberate statement of this is going to go in and and it's going to go out and it's going to be breathtaking and that's what I wanted it to do and I wanted it to say something and it did and um, my buddy from Crowbot guitar player Chris Bishop is playing on that along with my friend Tom Altman I'm playing some guitar on it Uh, Tom's playing bass another guitar player named Pop Sewell is playing on that guitar and bass is well, I'm doing drums throughout, doing all the lead vocals. Brandon's helping me on the backing vocals and uh, lots of other friends. So that was supposed to be like this um, surgical strike. That's what uh, All Freaks was supposed to be. Cool. That's good. I like that tune. I like it a lot. That was fun. Like, I mean, like I said, I like every track. So, I mean, you're going to hear me say that after every song. <laughs> like, I really like that song. <laughs> But I'm genuinely flattered and thrilled that you do. Uh, you being an artist, you know how that feels whenever somebody pays you that kind of respect as a colleague and a peer. So that's not lost on me. And I'm genuinely uh, thrilled and humbled that you that you like it. So I'll try to do a better job next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't wait for the next one. If it's as good as this one, that's that's fantastic. Um, now, Mad World. Uh, it's funny, as I was listening to that, This the first thing that came to my mind is like, okay, on a track like this, how do you approach it? Is it calculated? I can't, uh, on the song, I can't make a, a lot of comparisons to any other artist. So 
I assume you didn't sit down and think, hey, uh, I want this to sound like this band. And you probably uh, you probably don't do that very often anyways. But um, kind of how, how, how do you usually approach your songwriting and putting together songs and whatnot? Well, in general, it's, it's with a few exceptions, and I'll point them out if you want. Um, I write by myself, and typically I'll sit around with an acoustic guitar so I can hear the nuances. You know, if I'm cranking things up to 11, stuff gets kind of lost in the translation and, and the power and the wash. So I'll sit around with an acoustic guitar, and I will form the song. Initially, and you know how this works, well, I shouldn't say that. It works differently for different people, uh, for the way that I find that I write is that I'll get an initial spark, some initial idea of inspiration. So that's where the, let's call it the magic happens. You know, a little bit of inspiration will come my way and it'll be a chord progression or it'll be a phrase or it'll be a melody. And then I'll say, oh, that's interesting. That stops me in my tracks. And then I'll develop it. And what I'll do is, I have to be honest with you, I don't kind of, I, I, I kind of follow them. I don't, I don't lead them anywhere. They'll decide what they want to be, you know. Um, and I, I've described this a couple of times, and I'll try to be brief. Uh, ever since I was a child, I've been sort of creative like this and have always, you know, made up songs and written poems, and I paint and I draw and I do all kinds of stuff. So ever since I've been little, I've been fascinated with words, and I'm a word guy, basically, and I will bank those. So I have had notebooks and phones filled with snatches of words and phrases that uh, sort of resonate with me. And that's where I put them, and I'll put them in there. And then if I'm writing a song and it decides it wants to be, you know, a heavy rock song or a slower song or whatever, I'll go to that those uh, those uh, that word bank, for lack of a better term, and I'll say, what words lend themselves to what I'm doing here? And they will literally almost pop off the page or off the screen and say, I'm here, this is what you need. So it'll be a phrase or a word. And what I found was that as a, the run-up to making my I was collecting all these words, and as I was also finishing it up, I was tweaking the words a bit too. And these phrases that I was collecting, and these words I was collecting, were jumping off the off the screen, frankly, and off the page, and saying, "You need to use me because I'm the I'm what needs to go in here." And that's how it was working. With Mad World, that was somewhat sometimes it's put together in a Frankenstein way, like I just described. Other times, stuff comes in huge chunks, and maybe even comes all at once. Mad World kind of came all at once. This was right after the election. And I was walking around my town, uh, walking in my neighborhood, talking to people, and you had some people that were just elated, and they were super excited for the new administration and for all this stuff that was promised that was going to be this change, this, this change that people wanted that was promised. And also, the people on the one hand, on the other hand, these other people were just, like, devastated and distraught. And then the animosity started. Once the shock wore off, then you had people that were saying, we won, suck it. And the other people were like, this is wrong, we're going to change it. And that's when it started to get kind of weird. Now, it's not, it's outside the scope of what we're doing to tell you which side I was on, frankly. But, But what I wanted to do as an artist was to say, aha. I need to take this stuff in and I need to give it back because that's what my job is. Right. And that, that's what I did. So literally you can read through those words and it's, it, I, I see it as just my walk through my, my neighborhood and encountering these people, friends and family that are basically uh, just completely off their rockers. 
because of what's happened. And I put our 45th president in there because that's basically what it was about. I didn't, it's not my approval or disapproval of him. It's just, this is the fact. The fact is that this man is our 45th president and here's what it is that he's sort of done to this world for good or for bad. And he, you know, people will debate it. Done some good stuff, done some not so good stuff. That's not my job here. So um, the Middle Eastern thing was thrown in there at the very beginning because we had, you know, that uh, we what was sort of overpowering the whole atmosphere was, you know, this, uh, this, this ISIS problem that was going on. So I know it kind of locked it in time a little bit, but I wanted to grab that, and that's why we have that at the very beginning. And the rest of the song, it was written by myself, and uh, fun fact is John Hazel, the guitarist of Nitro, yeah. Plays all the guitars on there and uh, the bass, so it's just me and John. Nice. And uh, I play the intro guitar, the acoustic thing. But uh, John, uh, I've been with John for 40 years, know him well. We don't get together all the time, but when I call on him, he delivers. So, and this was really in his wheelhouse, the style of playing. I wanted to pay homage to the roots a bit, and that has a bit of an 80s feel to it, because John's great at that. And I, if I wanted something different, I would have gone to another guitar player. But I knew that this song had to have that sort of Aussie vibe to it. I'm a huge Randy Rhodes fan. And uh, he and he did that whole thing that that I, I love about that. So those people that follow me a little bit know that I like that. And so you you'll get that '80s vibe out of it. And John just killed it. And we had a great time. So it's John playing bass and guitars, and I'm playing drums. And I do that little intro at the beginning. The backing vocals are uh, me and Brandon Yagley, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Now let's go to Ghostland. Uh, it yeah. really, it really portrays a feeling. It's kind of mystical. It's creepy. Uh, I mean, was that your whole premise on the initial idea? This is something. Um, was this something you solely wanted to record to sound that way? The song actually gives me chills. Yeah, the short answer is yes, and I'm flattered that you think so. Uh, from one musician to another, that's a high compliment, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I did want it. I, I, if, if, the song itself was, um, it, well, I wanted it to do two things. I wanted to have a song on the record that talked about those people that were on the ground, that were the salt of the earth, and those people that are suffering. And those characters in there, there's a woman, there are other people, there's a man of faith, and there are other people in there that I wanted to make sure that those characters were talked about because they were really the casualties of all of this mobocracy that was happening um, and the disenfranchisement of common people. I have people like that in my own family. I have friends and those particular characters, I know who they are and I'll keep that to myself, but um, they're real people that uh, I expanded on and colored a little bit differently. But those are people that I know and it was meant to be to shine a spotlight on this is the real collateral damage of this. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it kind of makes my skin crawl as well. Uh, I was lucky in that I surrounded myself with musicians and technical people that are better than I am. So my, my MO is that, you know, find people that love what you do and get them to, and those people are better than you that love what you do and surround yourself with them and then get out of their way. And I did that. I wanted to have a bit of a sort of a, I was trying to channel John Bonham a bit on the drums when I put those down. I played some of them guitar on it as well. And, but most of the, the thing came to life because of my guitarists, Tom Altman and Pops Sewell. Those guys have this classic rock 
DNA that I wanted to tap into. I wanted it to feel like something that came out of the late 70s that would send chills up to my spine. And um, so Tom and Pops did a wonderful job, even though my guitar hacking away is in the background and I did the drums and the lead vocals. Uh, those guys really brought it to life. The solo on it uh, was one take that Tom did. Now he's a master at that kind of stuff. He's, this is right in his wheelhouse. So um, kudos to Tom for, for doing it. Uh, the song pretty much came to you know it came to life when I was writing it it's got a little bit of Neil Young in it when I was writing it I remember I, I was on a Neil Young jag and then uh, I wanted it to be a rock song with a spooky edge to it and uh, that's what you got cool and you know what it's funny uh, and as we get to the last cut on the EP which is titled Black it's funny because I was trying to figure out an analogy I, I it, and it was weird it's like okay you go to the amusement park, you're on a roller coaster. It's like the scariest roller coaster you've ever been on in your life. You do the whole thing, your adrenaline's rushing, you're like, oh wow, man, that was like, that was crazy. And then there is this feeling after when you get off the roller coaster and you're like, you're like, okay, I'm okay, I made it through that. That's kind of how I interpreted Ghostland going into black because. Black is, you know, it's it is mellow but moody, and it's more calming because after Ghostland, which kind of gave you chills and kind of scares the crap out of you, you've got this other song that's like, okay, it's going to be okay now. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, it was uh, you know the sequ sequencing of records is important, and thanks to Electric and Machine for helping me through that. Uh, but I had this pretty well figured out before I put the record together, and uh, Black was a deliberate move for a couple of reasons. Now, the song itself was for that reason. I wanted to give people a bit of a respite from all the howling and the slamming that I love to do. But I equally like this acoustic kind of thing. And the touchstones are like Led Zeppelin. You know, you listen to Led Zeppelin 4, you get Black Dog, you get Four Sticks, you get Rock and Roll, but also in the middle you get the Battle of Evermore and that kind of stuff. So I do like that. That's part of my DNA. And I wanted to make sure that my audience that's interested in my solo work oh let me back up a second i didn't get to do that in nitro that's not what our mission statement was we never did that so that was an important thing that i wanted to get into my solo work was to bring this part of it in that i love now even though when you talk about acoustic music people think of you know crosby stills nash and young or you know that kind of stuff yeah. uh, i was interested in those kinds of harmonies and that sort of quality of work but i didn't want it to be sappy and i didn't want it to be sentimental there may be those songs down the road that we'll get to but this particular record it needed a capstone and it needed some connective tissue to my next record that i'm making so that's why i put it in like that and thematically it had to be an answer to or an antidote to to Ghostland. So lyrically, it talks about all of those uh, emotional and spiritual kinds of uh, things that were bearing down on those characters of Ghostland. So it was automatic that I had to have the the answer to Ghostland after it, and Black fit thematically and it fit sonically as well. 
So I wanted to tell my uh, audience, hey, here's the kind of ride you're in for. It's not nitro. It's kind of like nitro, but it's expanded. And uh, if you're interested in what kind of work that I'm going to be doing that I'll be offering up, this is part of it. So uh, I wanted to make sure that I could bring those kinds of things to bear on it. And black uh, is probably one of my favorites on it simply because it is different and it shows that side. So it's got that little bit of Zeppelin thing to it. And I wanted to bring into it this exotic Middle Eastern vibe that's going on because we've got all this uh, xenophobia that's permeating our country. So uh, America's good at doing that, even though we're made up of a bunch of different cultures and creeds and races. You know, we, we have this xenophobic thing going on, and I, I wanted to bring that into it as well. Well, very well done. Thank you. So before I let you go, Sure. We must talk. We must let the listeners know how they can get a hold of the EP. Well, right now, um, you can get it on Bandcamp, which is uh, waxmechanics.bandcamp.com, or find me on Facebook, Waxim Mechanics, W-A-X-I-M-M-E-K-A-N-I-X. Right now, it's just digital because we're in this crazy pandemic thing, and it just screws up the economic model. You know, physical stuff is on the horizon. Well, I'm going to let Electric Talent decide when that's going to happen. It's only been out a few months, so there's always time for that, and if we come out the other end of this like we're supposed to gigs will happen and we'll have some physical product but if you can you know go there and check me out if you like it uh lead with your wallet if you don't let me know and i'll try to do better next time (laughs) (laughs) well you know what if you can let me know when those physical copies become available i want to get a copy of it because i have to i I want that now will it is it strictly going to be on cd uh, at this point, we're not sure. Um, it's possible that it'll be CD and it'll be vinyl. Uh, we're just trying to figure out, you know, it's their small label. We're trying to find partners around the world right. and anything's up for grabs now. And obviously, if there's anybody out there that is interested in helping out, you let us know because uh, it's, it's simply a matter of economics. You know, making physical copies that you're going to sell at gigs is really where we're at with it. Yeah. And that's where the way most people operate. And uh, at this point, I'm as eager as you are because, as I said earlier, it feels like a real record when I can hold it in my hand and it's a black disc or a colored disc. You know, CDs are nice, but I'm old school. So I'm looking forward to it, and I'm going to push that as quickly as I can. Cool. Okay. Well, that's perfect. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on. It was a pleasure. And uh, well, a pleasure with mine, Tyson. Thank that you. That was great. That was very great. That was really good. Well... I, I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, I mentioned earlier that I, uh, your, your position as a journalist is scary to me because it seems that you guys are drinking from fire hoses and how you do that, I'm not sure. So I appreciate that I'm just a single drop in that torrent that's coming at you. So I, I can't overstate how appreciative I am of the opportunity here to get in front of your audience. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon if I can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. It would be my pleasure. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll hook it up. Um, I mean, maybe even when the release of the album or, you know, like whatever, whatever you're doing, just let me know and uh, we'll go from there. Yep. Uh, probably in June, we're, I'm doing a split with a label mate. So I've got two, two new tunes that are chambered. And when that happens, I'll let you know the record company is going to be interested in me coming back to those folks that were interested the first time. So Perfect. you'll be hearing from me. Okay, well, <laughs> well, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you much, Tyson. Okay, take care. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.